The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 16. The Battle of Tours. Our episode this week takes us to the lands in the centre of the modern country of France during the 8th century. France is often thought of as the lands where the Romans led by Julius Caesar subjugated the Gauls. But we can suppose that these lands were occupied by humankind for many thousands of years before this happened as can be evidenced by bones attributed to Neanderthals and Cro-Magnon men who may well have lived alongside each other in these areas around 40,000 years ago. Following the last glacial maximum, the lands of France regained their fertility and welcomed human migration northwards from the lands around the Pyrenees Mountains. We grade the historical periods of the lands of France by the excavated pottery found in and around the lands, but we can also see evidence of prehistoric activity with the megalithic construction of the Karnak stones, which is further north and much more modern than the Lascaux cave paintings, which date back to the last glacial maximum. From there, the French lands experienced the typical and conventional progression to modern urban lifestyles, such as the emergence of agriculture, followed by the progression through the introduction of copper, bronze and iron in turn. Such cultures as the Bell Beaker culture are believed to have migrated into French lands. After this time, the Urnfield culture emerged in Central Europe. We don't really know how much the Urnfield culture directly influenced the lands of Central France, but it is more likely that the following Halstatt culture did. These two cultures are often cited as potentially ancestral to the Celtic culture, which the Romans encountered and referred to as Gauls. The area of France where today's battle took place would have been in close proximity to the Loire river system, which meant that it would very likely have been a place influenced by the Atlantic Bronze Age trade exchange, which enabled the inhabitants of this area to establish trade links with the lands of Iberia and the British Isles. These two destinations would have benefited from the convenient link to a culture in the Loire River system that could gain access to produce from Middle Europe. So the Celtic peoples who occupied France would have been a vital link in the European trade network and eventually it would be of interest to the Romans who would have benefited from having influence over these lands. So when the time was right, Julius Caesar would lead his armies into these lands occupied by Celts. The Celts would have led comparatively primitive lifestyles compared to the Romans, living in small settlements called Oppida, which were fortified Celtic towns. As mentioned, the Celtic tribes that the Romans were dealing with, they referred to as the Gauls. The Gauls were not a nation but they were a patchwork of Gallic tribal alliances, often doing battle with one another. Although some would submit to Caesar without a fight, many would congregate to defend their realm from being overrun by Caesar, until a fateful day in 52 BCE, when a Gallic alliance fronted by a man called Vercingetorix were hemmed in at the oppidum called Elysia by Caesar's army, who would overcome the Gauls and eventually take control of their territories. 
So now Caesar would be in control of the lands of the Loire River system and the new northern frontier would separate Roman lands from more barbarian tribes that Caesar did not recognise as Gauls, so he would call them Germans. Following Caesar's conquests of these lands, they would start to be Romanised. The modern French towns of Tours and Poitiers started to become significant settlements, the relevance being that these are the two larger towns that are in close proximity to the site of today's battle. The construction of Roman baths and roads took place in these years of occupation, and both Tours and Poitiers saw the construction of Roman amphitheatres. As Christianity became more relevant in Roman societies, both cities represented a Catholic diocese, and both would have their own individual bishops from the 4th century onwards. One particular bishop of Tours from the 6th century called Gregory would give us most of the information we know about Clovis, the first king of all the Franks. Going into the later years of the Roman Empire and the Roman provinces of Gaul were involved in a brief secession from the entire empire during the crisis of the 3rd century when they broke away to form the Gallic Empire, but once these lands were subsumed again, then a new threat to Gallic lands would emerge during the 4th century, when the arrival of the Huns in European territory displaced the indigenous German tribes and forced them onto the borders of the Roman Empire, and particularly the Rhine River, which represented the nearest thing to a natural barrier between the Roman provinces of Gaul and the barbarian lands to the east. The culmination of this pressure came in the year 406 when barbarian tribes crossed the river into Roman lands and wreaked havoc. The Romans may have anticipated such an event as we can see military fortifications built in Tours prior to this particular event. The crossing of the Rhine in 406 would signal the beginning of a political upheaval in Gaul where Roman power would be diminished and Germanic tribes would slowly begin to take over. Roman power would have to be prioritised elsewhere in their vast empire and this would come at the expense of the lands of Gaul. The Romans would gift their lands to the southwest of Poitiers to the Visigoths who would eventually extend their influence southwards to create a huge kingdom which stretched from the Garonne River Valley down through the Iberian Peninsula to the Strait of Gibraltar. With the decline of Roman power, the Romans would have to concentrate their efforts on protecting their interests back home in Italy, and this allowed Germanic tribes to move into these ungoverned lands and take control. The Visigoths expanded their influence northwards to the Loire River and this would bring Poitiers and Tours under their political influence. The lands to the north of the Loire were controlled by the remnants of a distant Roman governorship that we historically refer to as the Kingdom of Soissons. Other Germanic tribes that would take control of lands previously occupied by the Romans would be the Burgundians and the Alemanni but also in the far north centred around the lands of the modern country of Belgium would emerge a confederation of Frankish tribes. The Franks The Franks were a subgroup of Germanic tribes distinct from the Visigoths, the Alemanni and the Burgundians, among many others. And we can also further divide Frankish tribes down to distinct tribal groups such as the Salians and the Ripuarians. During the years of Roman imperial dominance, there is evidence of Frankish tribes working both with and against the Romans according to their own interests, and even evidence of Frankish tribes being in opposition to each other during the wider European political tensions between the Romans and the Huns. It would eventually come down to one highly influential king of the Salian Franks to coerce his fellow Frankish tribes to follow his lead, either by diplomatic methods or by force. His name was Clovis, 
and he would initially prove his worth as a leader by conquering the remnant Roman territory in northern Gaul called the Kingdom of Soissons. And so the Franks were now creating an extended Frankish kingdom ruled by a Merovingian dynasty of kings whose bloodline included Clovis. Clovis would campaign vigorously on behalf of his Frankish kingdom and would also convert himself and his kingdom to Catholicism. Later on in his reign, he would tackle the issue of his southern neighbours, the Visigoths. Clovis had come into direct contact with the Visigoths after conquering the Roman kingdom of Soissons earlier on during his reign. His success against the Visigoths meant that he was able to force the Visigoths southwards and take the cities and lands around Tours and Poitiers, enabling them to start to develop their modern French identity. According to Germanic tradition, the kingdom should be split between the sons of the outgoing king. So when King Clovis died in 511, the entire Frankish realm which Clovis had worked so hard to amass was now split apart, but still linked to each other culturally and dynastically by their Frankish connections. The bishoprics of Tours and Poitiers were linked to the nearby bishopric of Orléans and would be ruled by one of Clovis's sons as King Clodomer, the Frankish kingdom of Orléans. On Clodomer's death, the rule of the kingdom of Orléans would be transferred to the neighbouring Frankish kingdom of Paris, before it would all come back under one Frankish king again during the late 6th century. This was the nature of Francia, the lands under the rule of the Franks during their formative period. During the 7th century, a degree of autonomy was granted to an area in the southwest of Francia called Aquitaine. Aquitaine would be established as a Frankish territory. Poitiers appears to be within the Aquitanian territory during this period and Tours was likely to be on the northern borderlands of Aquitaine and the main Frankish kingdom. Another important development within Francia was the diminishing power of the kings who were gradually coming under the control of their senior politicians as the hereditary royal line was causing too many children to accede to the throne and their senior statesmen who controlled the day-to-day governance of their realms would be the real power behind the throne. Their most senior statesmen were somewhat like a modern prime minister and they were called the mayor of the palace. One particular mayor of the palace was a man who would come to be known to history as Charles Martel and he would rise to power in the Frankish territory of Austrasia before becoming the mayor of the palace in the entire Frankish kingdom. During Charles's lifetime in the far-off lands of Arabia and completely unrelated to anything we have already spoken about, a dynasty called the Umayyads were rising to power within the new Islamic Caliphate. The Umayyad Caliphate During the 7th century in Arabia, a new political entity would rise to power with their underpinning cultural aspect being the newly discovered spiritual observance called Islam. These followers of Islam were called Muslims and they would gain a large following that would enable them to be able to expand their area of influence to something on a significant international scale very quickly, not unlike the initial Frankish expansion. The desert lands of Arabia were vast and sparsely populated, which meant that the geographical size of this Islamic caliphate grew to an incredible size, but this could also present challenges when it came to the specific political direction of this new nation, and so rivalries would emerge between different factions. One of the more important factions were based on their dynastic ties to the family of the originator of the Islamic faith, namely the Prophet Muhammad, and this dynasty was called the Umayyad dynasty. The Umayyad dynasty would represent the Sunni branch of Islam and despite being opposed in principle because of its perceived controversial attitude towards Islam managed to rise to prominence through their leader Muawiyah. 
the Umayyads embarked on a mission of expansion from their political homelands in Syria, and often in ancient times, the one valuable conquest that appealed to every great imperial entity of the eastern Mediterranean was Egypt. So the Umayyads set their sights on North Africa. The Umayyads were quite successful in North Africa, gaining control of Egypt and then looking to expand westwards towards Carthage. But the events of the 7th century within the Islamic Caliphate meant that the Umayyads could not commit themselves fully to the cause and would have to prioritise dealing with internal threats to their own rule of the Caliphate during the civil conflict called the Second Fitna. The Umayyads overcame this threat and bounced back with a vengeance, venturing into North Africa again and destroying Carthage before taking control of the Maghreb and bringing the indigenous North African Berbers into their army. This would be the end of any significant Roman presence in North Africa and the cementing of Arabic culture that has remained to the modern age. This would bring the Umayyads to the Strait of Gibraltar and the doorstep of Europe. The Iberian Peninsula at this time was occupied by the Visigoths who had a well-established kingdom there. The Umayyads would put their target on the Visigoths and bravely cross the Strait of Gibraltar, winning a key battle at Guadalete in 711. The Visigothic kingdom at the time was not at its healthiest, with various dynastic struggles in their more recent years. The Umayyads made quick work of taking control of Visigothic lands and this would send shockwaves through Europe as these exotic invaders from far off lands would be collectively referred to by the Europeans as Saracens and they were now potentially a direct threat to all of the Western European nations. The Umayyads took control of the entire Iberian Peninsula through the course of the Seven Tens, with there being one last remaining Visigothic stronghold in the far north that the Umayyads failed to conquer. But there was not nearly enough power there to mount any kind of counter-offensive. The Umayyads had other ambitions by this time. It would be the Frankish Kingdom of Aquitaine. Aquitaine, at the time, would have a personal union with the Duchy of Gascony, which would act as a buffer between the Frankish kingdoms and the area of the Iberian Peninsula controlled by the Basques. Aquitaine and Gascony were under the rule of Duke Odo, a highly respected and seasoned ruler who would actually come to be known to history as Odo the Great. The new dominant Umayyad realm of the Iberian Peninsula taking over from the Visigothic kingdom, was called Al-Andalus. The Wali, or governor of Al-Andalus, was a man called Al-Samhibin Malik Al-Khawlani. Al-Sam initiated a siege on the Aquitanian city of Toulouse, on the banks of the Pyrenees-fed Garonne River, which led to the fruitful Atlantic trade opportunities via the Bay of Biscay. Duke Odo fled for help while Toulouse was besieged and he headed to the court of the mayor of the palace for Francia, namely Charles Martel. Charles Martel Charles Martel was the son of the mayor of the palace of the Frankish kingdom of Austrasia called Pepin of Erstal. In a time when the mayor of the palace was the man leading the nation during a time of do-nothing Frankish kings, rulers in name only. Pepin would gain control of all of the neighbouring Frankish kingdoms, bringing the Franks together under one ruler, save Aquitaine and Gascony. Pepin would then declare himself the Duke and Prince of the Franks. Pepin's rule was quite a long rule until he died in 714, which led to a bit of a succession crisis, during which time the Visigothic kingdom to the south of the Frankish kingdoms was being overcome by the Umayyads. We know very little about Charles's early life, with claims of his illegitimacy due to his mother's questionable relationship with Pepin. 
but this might have just been defamatory remarks made by the supporters of Pepin's first wife. Charles must have reached his adult years with a good degree of political and military guile, because he was very much up for the fight to become his father's successor. It would take Charles four years to overcome his political opponents to become the new Duke and Prince of all of the Franks. Charles would spend his entire time both before and after this success doing battle with and making diplomatic moves with all of his neighbours. Charles would also have ambitions of absorbing Duke Odo's kingdom of Aquitaine, so it must have been quite the conversation if and when Duke Odo arrived at Charles Martel's court to plead for help in resisting the siege of Toulouse. Odo must have been incredibly disappointed when Charles refused to help him, but Odo was a very steely character and he didn't receive the moniker Odo the Great for no reason. So Odo returned to the south and attacked the Al-Andalus Umayyads and their army of Berbers with everything he had, and what is more is that he successfully broke the siege, sending the Muslims back to their strongholds. The leader of the siege, Al-Samh, died in mysterious circumstances directly following the failed siege, while the rest of his men fled, and maybe among them was a man called Abd al-Rahman, Ibn Abd Allah al-Ghafiqi. Abd al-Rahman al-Ghafiqi. Abd al-Rahman's origins are hazy, but he either originated from Arabia or his tribal roots were in Arabia. He is certainly known to have been in North Africa before the period in question, specifically the area of Ifriqiya, which would have contained the city of Carthage. Ifriqiya would have been under the governorship of a man called Musa ibn Nusayr. During this time, a Berber representing the Umayyads called Tariq ibn Ziyad had landed at Gibraltar and started making gains in Visigothic territory. We mentioned the Battle of Guatalete from the year 711 earlier in the episode as a key battle in this Umayyad invasion. It has been suggested that the governor of Ifriqiya, Musa ibn Nusayr, felt uncomfortable about a Berber claiming all the credit for taking lands from the Visigoths, so he decided to join in and assist Tariq in his cause. Musa would also take his son Abd al-Aziz on these campaigns of conquest. When both Tariq and Musa were recalled from Iberia by the Umayyad Caliphate, Abd al-Aziz became the governor. But it is not completely clear when Abdullah Rahman crossed into Iberia. It does seem that Abdullah Rahman took part in the Battle of Toulouse in 721 between the Umayyads and the Aquitanians, but we know that Abd al-Aziz had been murdered some years before this. The Battle of Toulouse was a disaster for the Arabs, who were forced to flee by the Aquitanian ruler, Odo the Great. The Arabs retreated back south into Iberia to think again. During the course of the next few years, Abdullah Rahman was building his reputation as a capable governor until the point where he was allowed to become the Wali, or governor, of the whole of Al-Andalus. Abdullah Rahman would have his hands full putting down rebellions from within the Umayyad province of Al-Andalus, but once he had successfully overcome them, he would turn his attention back to the north and the Frankish Duchy of Aquitaine, still under the governance of Duke Odo, otherwise called Odo the Great. Prelude to the Battle by the time of Abdul Rahman's intention to invade Aquitaine, the Umayyads had some years before managed to gain control of Gascony, which at the time was a part of a personal union with Odo the Great's Aquitaine. Odo was painfully aware that if the Umayyads invaded again, that he could not rely on Charles Martel's support in order to fend the Umayyads off. At Toulouse in 721, Odo had had the element of surprise, but this time the Umayyads would be better prepared. 
Odo's legacy and Monica were made all the more interesting by the fact that he was surrounded by threats to Aquitanian authority with the highly intimidating province of Al-Andalus to his south and the might of Charles Martel's kingdom of Francia to his north. Odo had to throw himself at the mercy of Charles Martel, but Martel was not on hand when Abdul Rahman led a force through Gascony and toward the Aquitanian city of Bordeaux. Debate about the exact reasons for the Umayyad surge into French lands is quite fervent among historians. To the glancing eye, it looks like a classic case of expansionism where the Umayyads were continuing to do what they had always done best, and this was just a continuation of what they had already accomplished in Egypt, Ifriqiya, the Maghreb and Al-Andalus. However, further analysis reveals that Odo the Great had actually attempted to befriend a highly influential Umayyad governor of Berber origin and a direct opponent of Abdul Rahman called Munuza and someone who Abdul Rahman had defeated preceding the invasion of Aquitaine. So Abdul Rahman may have been seeking to punish Odo and the Aquitanians and he would understand that much wealth in the Frankish kingdoms would exist in their monasteries. Abdul Rahman stormed and overwhelmed the city of Bordeaux, which gave them a chance to target the rich monasteries of Aquitaine. Odo would gather his army and the two met at the Battle of the River Garonne in 732, where Abdul Rahman dealt the Aquitanians a crushing defeat, leading to Odo and the remains of his army fleeing north and Abdul Rahman and the Umayyads plundering the wealth of Aquitaine ahead of a further push northwards. By this time at least, decision-making within the Frankish kingdoms must have been made easier for them. Odo pledged submission to Charles Martel, which Charles Martel readily accepted in order to form a larger army bolstered by Odo and his troops, because Charles knew that it would only be a matter of time before Abdul Rahman would make another push northwards into the Frankish lands of the Loire Valley and the wealthy Basilica of St Martin at the city of Tours. The Battle of Tours The Battle of Tours is sometimes called the Battle of Poitiers due to the uncertainty around its location, which is generally thought to have taken place at a location between the two cities that was strategically suitable for Charles Martel. Charles is thought to have tracked the movements of Abdul Rahman and set up a defensive position from which to engage the Umayyad army. Charles's forces would have been flanked by those of Odo the Great and may have been protected by the courses of the local rivers or the presence of thick woodland too. With a lack of contemporary evidence, there is a lot of likelihoods assumed by historians in relation to the specifics of the battle. We may safely assume through other campaigns that Charles's army, mainly made up from infantry, would have been arranged in a tightly packed phalanx. There may have been a good amount of cavalry, but we just don't have an accurate picture, and we're really not even sure how many were in the Frankish army. But we could be looking at anything up to 20 or 30,000 individuals. The weapons available to the Frankish army would have included long spears, swords and axes, and that the infantry is likely to have been well experienced by the Frankish campaigns eastwards during Charles Martel's seniority. The Umayyad army would have certainly had a good number of cavalry, whether or not they were stirruped is a matter for debate, but the horsemen were almost certainly armed with swords and spears. The Umayyad infantry would have been armed with slings and javelins. There is mention of bowmen within the Umayyad army, but there does seem to be scant evidence of archers in general in relation to this battle. It may have been that Umayyad cavalry was lighter than the heavy cavalry 
that Charles Martel would have deployed. But Charles seems to have taken a defensive attitude, trying to act as a roadblock for Abdul Rahman's ambitions to reach the city of Tours. And it is suggested that Abdul Rahman was caught unaware by Charles Martel's military presence on the fateful day suggested by the accounts of both cultures to be in October 732. Abdul Rahman is believed to have ordered the attack on Charles's army unleashing the light cavalry. Odo the Great is likely to have been in command of the Frankish heavy cavalry and his job was to absorb the attacks while Charles would have commanded his army to stay tightly packed knowing that his strategical position would have prevented the Umayyads from surrounding him. All Charles needed to do was stand firm and absorb the Umayyad advances and at the opportune times attempt to kill as many Umayyad aggressors who broke rank attempting to disunite the Frankish phalanx. It must have been a very gruelling battle and a great test of attrition for both armies. Charles may have had to have absorbed a number of offences until he was able to issue a command to advance and take his chances against an Umayyad army depleted by failed attacks on the stubborn Frankish lines. But when he did, it is suggested that Odo attempted to target the Umayyad camp in order to cause disarray and plunder their booty. Abdul Rahman is said to have ordered a hasty retreat in order to protect the remains of his possessions. It was during this retreat that it has been suggested that Abdul Rahman was struck by a javelin and that he never made it back to the camp. With their great military leader and governor killed, the Umayyads went back to their camp, grabbed everything that they could and made off back south before they were completely overrun by Charles and Odo's forces. Aftermath The significance of this battle is heavily debated, but personally I believe that we do not need to read too much into certain aspects that can be glorified if we feel like it suits us to do so. The Umayyad Caliphate was an Islamic nation that in its Sunni observances was less fundamental than some of its rivals, such as the Alids and the Harijites, for example. The Umayyads of Al-Andalus would have contained much in the way of Berber influence, and their aim would have been to capture land and gather wealth. Visigoths, Aquitanians and Franks would have been Catholic nations, but their whole motivation would have been to protect what they had and defend their realms. The Battle of Tours can sometimes be portrayed as a great Christian-European victory against the ideologically opposed Muslim armies from Arabia. But the reality was that Charles was fighting against Frankish rebels as well, such as the Saxons, the Frisians and Alemanni on his northern and eastern frontiers, so unrest on his southern fronts was just another battle for Charles, no less and no more important than any other which threatened his lands. There's also not the same kind of mention of importance of Islamic conversion within Al-Andalus as there was in the initial Umayyad campaigns of the Middle East, so the Umayyad invasions of Francia seem to be motivated by wealth, much more than religious intent. Whatever the truth is, and however the Battle of Tours has been romanticised by religious enthusiasts in more modern times, there does not appear to be another Umayyad expansion attempt in Western Europe that matches the significance of this particular one. And the highly impressive Umayyad achievements reached their buffer at this point, with this now being a turning point for Frankish fortunes as they would go on to consolidate their rule over the lands of the modern country of France, restricting the Umayyads to the Iberian Peninsula. So while I am downplaying the religious aspect of this battle, suggesting that there was little in the way of religious intent behind the battle, certainly the religious implications of the battle 
were highly significant. We may have seen much of Western Europe converted to Islamic rule by an Umayyad victory at the Battle of Tur, and history may have been significantly different had the outcome have been different. Odo returned to Aquitaine after the battle to govern his recovered realm. Odo may have died three years after the battle. Aquitaine and Francia continued to have a strained relationship in the decades following this battle and as such Francia would end up conquering and annexing the territory in 769. This was by no means permanent at this point with the Aquitanians playing a very important role in medieval politics until the modern age after which it would be a permanent part of the Kingdom of France. Aquitanians would look back to Duke Odo as an Aquitanian hero and an important and proud individual in their own history. The Umayyads were overthrown in their Middle East heartlands by the Abbasids during the 750s, but Umayyad dynasties continued to rule in Al-Andalus, so an independent emirate was declared in Iberia centred at the capital city of Cordova which would stand firm as an established nation for a number of centuries, eventually succumbing to the successes of the Reconquista, which we will discuss further in future episodes. Charles Martel was never the king of Francia, but his legacy is interesting. Clovis is often seen as the first great Frankish ruler and the first king of France in the eyes of modern French people who wish to be proud of their country's rich history. Due to the incredible political achievements of Charles Martel's grandson, Charlemagne, we tend to see Charlemagne as the great, iconic, early medieval imperial ruler of France. Charles Martel died in 741, nine years after the Battle of Tours, and certainly at least in his 50s. By the time of his death, Not only was the need for a Merovingian king unnecessary, but there was not even one declared. Charles had no priority on announcing a king and the rule of the Frankish kingdom was firmly in Charles' hands. His son, Pepin the Short, father of Charlemagne, took control of the Frankish realms in the aftermath of Charles Martel's death and declared himself as the king of the Franks in 751. Interestingly, many people state that the Carolingian kings of France were named after their famous king Charlemagne, but Pepin the Short represented the first Carolingian king in France following the lack of importance of the Merovingian line, and so it is much more likely that the Carolingian line is actually named in honour of Pepin's father, Charles Martel. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast where we explored the Battle of Tours and the meeting between the Umayyads who were the first Islamic uh, entity who entered into European lands and uh, they were up against the Franks, this huge growing uh, nation that would eventually sort of give birth really to what we conceive as the French and German nations ultimately. So... Um, a great battle and, um, you know, quite pivotal in the story of history in Europe. So uh, thank you so much for listening. And um, we'll uh, move on now to uh, some other features. The Ancient World Cup. Well, we're almost to the end of the first round. It's almost quite unbelievable. We've been through 15 of the groups and... Next week will be the final group of the first round. It seemed like uh, such a big mission, didn't it, at the start? And then uh, suddenly now we're through to um, the knockout stages very nearly. Um, The second from last group took place uh, this week, just gone. And the the four teams involved were the uh, two two of the Germanic tribes who, um, who succeeded in the, in the decline of, uh, Roman of the Western Roman Empire, the Vandals and the Visigoths. And then we had the Siambae, who were um, equally sort of quite successful in the in the 
aftermath of the fall of Han China, they sort of stepped in and took advantage of that. And then the other one with very old, uh, very old uh, society called the Mycenaeans, um, who we uh, explored in uh, way back in volume two. Um, so let's uh, go and have a look at the results. Um, so, just pulling them up now. Let's have a look. It was very, very close, actually. Very close indeed. We had runaway uh, winners with 44% of the vote was the Mycenaeans. And then it was very, very tight for second place. And we had to sort of take a view across all of the platforms and... Um, there was, a, I think there was just one vote in it, if I'm not mistaken. So um, in second place, with 25% of the vote, and going through to the next round, were the Visigoths. Which means that in third place, and narrowly missing out with 22% of the vote, were the Vandals. And uh, finally, uh, bottom of the pile, were uh, with 8% of the vote, the Siambay. And so uh, that concludes uh, Group O. Next week is Group P. And uh, let's have a look at who we've got. So um, the four teams that we've got, the last four teams that will be taking part in this year's competition uh, will be uh, the Shang China, the dynasty of the Shang China, um, who were the first confirmed Chinese dynasty. Um, the first one that we really have uh, irrefutable evidence of their existence. So they were around before the Zhou dynasty, the Shang dynasty of China. We've got the Assyrians who uh, had a, a long and rich history and, and uh, sort of came and went a bit. They were uh, always um, traditional rivals of the Babylonians, but um, certainly... Um, Iron Age specialists and they managed to survive the late Bronze Age collapse narrowly um, then uh, the third team we've got a Qin China so we've got two Chinese cultures in this group Qin China very short lived but uh, certainly the legacy is considerable uh, Qin Shi Huang who was, their, who was their main emperor throughout most of their existence uh, was that the man responsible for the construction of the terracotta army at his great pyramid tomb and um, certainly has been uh, noted to be the first great emperor of China that, that, ever, uh, that ever ruled their lands. Um, and then uh, finally we've got the Achaemenid Persians. Well, goodness me, what can you say about the Achaemenids? They're uh, uh, originally um, under Cyrus the Great established this huge... Um, empire, the first, the first real Persian empire that we saw. Great battles against the Greek Poles. Um, certainly um, responsible for the for the uh, emancipation of the of the um, Israelites from Babylon, um, and uh, you know certainly really the. Uh, the creators of Persian culture as, as we uh, reflect on it today. Uh, so what a good group. What a, an interesting group. That's Shang China, Assyria, Qin China and Achaemenid Persia. Look out on Facebook, Twitter and the Tapper Talk discussion forum for your ability to vote. Listener messages and reviews. Now, as ever, we remind you that if you want to support the podcast, you very much you can do so. You can go to the History of the World Podcast.com website, click on the Patreon link, and sign up to make a monthly contribution. And everything that you contribute really does help the podcast to improve. Uh, it enables me to invest in in better equipment, in uh, in sort of online projects that can enhance the podcasts. Uh, ability to reach out to more people and certainly um, enable me to uh, purchase more resources by which I can uh, get a much better picture of what um, I need to write in order to tell you a great story each week. So um, you your contributions really do make a difference. Um, and uh, when you do make a, a contribution to the History of the World podcast, you become 
a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And it gives me great pleasure this week to welcome Barrett Arlo and Cassie Castle into the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Now, let's um, find out who's written in this week. We've got Aaron Hurtis has written in. and put, Hi, Chris. I hope you're doing well in this wild and crazy world in which we live. Thank you very much for the keychain magnet and coaster I just received them this week. I particularly love the coaster as I am very much a coffee enthusiast. The arrival of your package is timely as I've recently caught up with the show. I started listening in 2020 when my girlfriend was living in different... Uh, when my girlfriend... Um, were were living in different cities. Well, my girlfriend and I were living in different cities. I think that should read. And we were driving backwards and forwards on weekends. Your way of telling the story is simply spectacular, and the depth of the information is inspiring. I would be very interested to know how you process so much information in such a short amount of time to produce an episode each week. If you would be willing to share, I would also like to follow up on a comment made by Tobias Horsewith. From several weeks back, Volume 4, Episode 12, he had pointed out that one of the many charms of Volume 1 and 2 were the episodes where you talk about daily life, such as food, working life, education, tools and weapons, religions and beliefs, social structures, technology, etc. There's been a noticeable absence of these episodes in Volume 3 and 4. I fully accept and empathise with your response that as the podcast gets closer to the present day, history becomes more complicated and you need to focus on the key figures and events in order to keep the things manageable. However, I think uh, one of the more interesting things behind historical events are the motives of the people driving events and the why of the events that happen. These are uh, things that are always strongly influenced by co- cultural and social norms, religion, laws and political structures and sometimes even even technology. Without understanding these drivers of history, there's a risk of succumbing to the dates and names version of history that is so often uncharitably portrayed in pop culture. Keeping in mind your point about keeping things manageable, would you consider including episodes on these topics once in a while? It wouldn't have been uh it wouldn't have to be often for or for every culture just the key ones for example how did the christian and muslim societies of the middle ages differ and why did this so often put them at odds what made the germans different from the byzantines that led them to butt heads why was the medieval era so much more violent than previous eras your recent episode on the merovingians was a fantastic case in how uh, a changing political structure, the rise of the mayors, totally reshaped the Frankish political and social landscape. Your battle episode sets a good precedent for doing episodes like this, where you take some time to explore a specific event to highlight the broader impacts it had. In this case, the focus would just be on the cultural and social factors rather than the militaristic factors. Anyway, that is my two cents. Do with it what you will. The show remains magnificent magnificent and i look forward to the new episode each week take care with gratitude from canada aaron hurties thank you aaron very uh very uh in-depth message there but um very interesting nonetheless and um i think um in order not to answer that in great detail i think um you know i i will cover things such as like um certainly when we were talking about the persians i, I sort of looked at zoroastrianism but um, certainly with with cultural aspects such as um, the ones that um, emerged in China, Confucianism and um, Taoism, um, that kind of thing um, in China was sort of emerged during um, the during a period of history of China. So we sort of covered that to some degree within the episodes, and um, certainly. Um, as we get nearer the modern age, we find that a lot of the cultural developments had maybe already happened. Those cultural developments that influenced the direction of humankind had already taken place. And so um, really we, we would just be sort of amalgamating um, information uh, within the episodes themselves. So like the fact that, you know, as you mentioned, the, the nature of how uh, Frankish kingdoms um, and their kings, their Merovingian kings, became insignificant 
we covered that. So um, I do think we are still covering things like that. But I, I, I have noted that one or two of you uh, have have mentioned it. So it's not just you that's noted it, uh, noticed this, Aaron. But um, yeah, I think it's just something that we have to sort of understand. You know, we can't necessarily. Um, you know, we we almost have to correct certain things, like the things you mentioned about Christian and Muslim societies in the Middle Ages. Really, didn't care about each other that much, to be honest with you. Um, they cared more about their neighbours, their ge- geographical neighbours, and and we find things like the Crusades have been glorified as uh, this great uh, meeting of Christians and Muslims who are ideologically opposite to one another and it's really not the case to be honest with you like Christian and Muslim societies you know often live healthily alongside each other and um, it's only people that wish to um, that wish to sort of divide them that try and glorify things like the Crusades and, and once again like today's episode you know it's almost seen as the stopping Islam from taking over Christendom and it's, it really wasn't like that for me as, as I read the facts it looked like a, a society that was trying to expand in the same way that um, many others were and, and throughout history so it didn't seem like a completely different set of circumstances whatsoever um, what made the Germans different from the Byzantines that led them to butt heads? It, well, it was really just once again Germans trying to take Byzantine lands and Byzantines just trying to subjugate them. Um, once again, it's just all about power, influence, wealth, owning lands, and all of that. It's, it's really um, you can look um, too deeply beyond the surface for reasons why cultures are different and we because we all come from different nations and we compete in sporting events and we get great pleasure out of England having rivals in Germany and German rivals England we try and look back into our cultural histories for in-depth reasons why we're rivals is there's no real in-depth reason we're all the same we all have the same motivations like historically and that is just to be wealthy and uh, live comfortable lives um, so really yeah I mean it, it's interesting to to look at those things but sometimes we can put too much emphasis on things that don't exist so um, hopefully the History of the World podcast over the course of its uh, production will highlight uh, those things and, and, and make us think somewhat differently about the way that we perceive the world that we live in and the way that we perceive history and those uh, things that have happened in our education and in years gone by that are almost like propagandist ways to make us feel and think differently to how we should probably think in a in a much more tolerant and uh, open-minded way. You know, the way that we're educated by schools and media sometimes isn't necessarily uh, correct because, um, you know, it suits certain people political stances for us to look at the world in certain ways so um i hope that makes sense bit of a ramble but um somewhat my response to that email aaron and uh it's a very very interesting discussion so i encourage us to debate those facts uh certainly a lot more and if you do want to then just certainly open up uh some discussions on the tapper talk forum which is the history of the world podcast discussion forum which you can access through the interact link on the website okay in stark contrast leah jarvis has uh, written in a very brief message but hello chris just wanted to write in and let you know how much i appreciate your hard work i drive trucks long haul and you have kept me company on many of a lonely long lonely night uh, thank you just a modern trader um, thank you very much, Leah. Very kind of you to write that message in, and uh, nice to hear from you. Thank you so much. Hope you uh, hope you don't feel too lonely. Uh, Ryan Schaffer has put um, Chris. Thank you for the podcast. I discovered your project late and have just caught up recently. I grew up in New Mexico and have been familiar with the naming of Clovis Man for a while, but was surprised to hear the story of why the city was called Clovis in the in the first place you your most recent episode volume 4 episode 15 was a good one and that fact about my home state will stick with me thank you 
for the effort you put into your work. It is truly fascinating. Um, yeah, thanks a lot, Ryan. Yeah, I, yeah, these these uh, these stories that we don't necessarily know about, and suddenly we're very surprised. You know, sometimes we don't even think about it, and uh, you know, it can be a nice surprise to hear uh, the reasons why things are the way that they are. Um, next email I've got in from Nicholas Kurz, but hi Chris, shout out to Ukraine and anything that brings more equality, prosperity and peace for humanity that uh, that in turn can provide the sustainability for all life on our miraculous planet. I always learn something new from old episodes. I missed the part in volume one, episode four, where the explanation of hair loss uh, in Erectus was attributed to having to run to catch prey. Completely makes sense, as does you making a permanent auditory re- uh, record of his- human history, so that I may, at my pleasure and free of charge, revisit these episodes and expand my knowledge. Thanks again, Chris. Peace out, Nick. Well, yeah, I mean, but that is a theory. That is a theory about the explanation of hair loss. So um, just be be aware. We don't know that that's the reason, but we, we suspect it could be a reason. So um, always be open-minded. Uh, Chuck Thiele, um, Teal, uh, Chuck Teal, maybe, I don't know, forgive me if I mispronounce your name. Hi Chris, I really enjoy listening to your podcast as it is all very fascinating information. Like you, I too found an interest in history later in life, especially with various podcasts. Your podcast promises to incorporate much information from a variety of sources and ties things together very well. After your main podcast on the Franks today, you mentioned the invasion of the Russian army that is going, that is ongoing and referenced the country being invaded as the Ukraine. Here in the USA, politicians and media refer to the country as Ukraine. I remember a time when it was referred to as the Ukraine, but that seems to have changed, much as the pronunciation of different places in the world changes over time. Can you Possibly explain which is the proper term for that country and why. Thanks, Chuck Teal. Now, um, yes, the country is called Ukraine. Um, when I said uh, the Ukraine, it was really just uh, an old-fashioned colloquialism. And um, I'd like to apologise uh, to anyone who, who doesn't like uh, that colloquialism, the Ukraine. I think... Um, today it's not acceptable really to call it the Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainians tend to um, not feel that it's an appropriate uh, way to refer to their country because it almost um, it almost suggests that we're referring to it as the borderlands of Russia because they, the etymological roots of the word Ukraine are suspected to mean borderlands and so therefore... Um, to distinguish it and to make it distinct, uh, we should call it Ukraine. And uh, the media uh, has has been encouraged to do that. And so my sincerest apologies for my ignorance and, and my lack of knowledge and uh, for not correcting a colloquialism that um, I picked up um, in my younger years when uh, it was more often heard. So... Um, thank you so much, Chuck, for that email. It has made, it has educated me about um, how to refer to the country of Ukraine correctly. And uh, once again, I, as I say, I apologise. It, it was I, I didn't mean to be ignorant, but thank you, Chuck. And that was an excellent email. And that's uh, that's possibly the reason why that colloquialism exists. Um, so um, there you go. I think. Um, that's it for the emails this week. Just enough time once again to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Next week will be a very interesting episode indeed where we'll continue the story of the Franks and get more familiar with the wonderful Charlemagne, who, uh, what a great historical character of the medieval period he was. Um, Very, very significant character and one that we'll cover in next week's episode. So, Uh, Next week, it will be part two of the Frankish story. Uh, We look forward to that. Thanks again for listening this week. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review and uh, do consider making uh, a financial commitment through Patreon. Until next week, thanks a lot and be good. 
the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.